I had initially planned on talking to you directly from the lesson study, but I was encouraged not to, and therefore I won't. I want to speak to you today about the, on the subject clean but empty. You may remember hearing about a man in the news a few years ago. His name was Rafael Ramirez. He's now the convicted Rampart Division officer who was convicted and jailed um, as one of the LAPD's most notorious police felons. And what happened in Raphael's life was really the stuff that movies are made of. He was seduced by power and by money and by the party life and the party life. And, but it was not really something written for television. This was a real life story. Raphael, like millions of inhabitants of the earth, is the target of a great battle that's waging right now between Christ and Satan. He was the victim of a satanic drive-by. He was targeted from his birth. Raphael was possessed by a dark, evil spirit, so powerful that without help, he was doomed to lie and rob and kill, and indeed was convicted for all of those. It is a battle that has consumed the pages of history and has stolen the headlines in our national papers. Yet most people have no idea that this battle between God and Satan is actually going on. It is a battle between Jesus and Beelzebub, and chapter 11 of the book of Luke gives us a sneak preview about how this battle is actually being fought. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 11, and we'll take a look at the context of this passage. In verse 14 of Luke chapter 11, it says, Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left the man uh, who had been mute, he spoke. And the crowd was amazed. Jesus drove out this demon from this man who had been unable to speak. And by doing so, he was attacking the very stronghold of the devil. Now, there are two groups of people, if you continue reading in the passage, who witnessed this miracle by Jesus. One group in the crowd says that they were amazed at what they saw. But there was another group that was actually offended at what they saw. And they accused Christ in verse 15 of being in bed with the devil himself. They said, how can you drive out the devil unless you are a part of the devil? And so you had two groups of people there, those who were oppressed and amazed and those who were offended. Others were asking for some sign from heaven to demonstrate that this was indeed true. But Jesus knew their thoughts and he confronted them in verse 17 of Luke 11. And he said, a kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. Satan does not war with himself. Verse 19, he says, by whom do your followers drive out Satan? Drive these devils out. What was interesting is that why did they single out Jesus for casting out a demon when their own followers were trying to cast out demons? And then in verse 20, he says, but if I drive out demons with the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. But what is interesting about that besides the duplicity in the crowd, was that Jesus did not need the entire arm of God to defeat Satan. All he needed was the finger of God. We need to be encouraged this morning that Satan is a defeated foe. Many people worry about the devil, and I'm not trying to minimize his power, but we need to understand that the devil has already been defeated. In Jesus, we have victory right now. The devil is no match 
for God. James Wendell Johnson says, you know, your arms are too short to box with God, and so are the devils. It cannot be done. But God had a strategy that gets revealed later in this passage. You see, in every contest, the warring sides must have both an offensive strategy and a defensive strategy. I'm a big f- football fan. And I, I watch what the offense does when they have the ball, and I, I see the defense huddled over on the side trying to figure out how to stop the opposing team. And at halftime, they change their strategies to meet what the other teams were doing. If you go into battle, you'll find an offensive and as well as a defensive strategy, you're in trouble. God had both. And if we look at uh, verse 21 and 22, we get a glimpse of the offensive strategy. Verse 21 says, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up the spoils. The miserable condition of an unconverted sinner is epidemic in our society. The human heart, which was designed to be a part of the habitation of God, has become, unfortunately, the palace of devils. And all of our human talents, all of our human powers that could be employed in the service of God are frequently being employed in the service of the devil. Satan resides in the hearts of men. Satan rules. His will is obeyed. His interests are served. And the militia are in his hands. The devil, my friends, is this strong man that Jesus is referring to here in Luke 11. He does all he can to fortify his palace against Christ. His fortifications, they are lust and greed and materialism ease, comfort, and intolerance of human weakness and human differences. Satan has erected the battlements of pride and skepticism, knowledge without wisdom, sex without love, love without honor, marriage without commitment. He has protected his palace with the armor of racism and of sexism and elitism and envy. He is defeated by He is defended, I should say, by selfishness, and he is walled in by faithlessness. Satan is the strong man. He is armed, and he distributes crack to children in our ghettos. He he puts smut in magazines and sells them on our newsstands. He engenders and fosters wars among nations. He brings famine to the land, and millions of the people in the world are poor and suffering because the strong man has fortified himself with the greed of the Western world not to respond to their needs. But according to verse 21, he feels that his possessions are safe. You know, Jesus made a comment. He says, when the salt has lost its savor, it is good for nothing but to be cast out. The church represents the salt of the earth. He says, ye are the salt of the earth. The problem why Satan feels that his possessions in the world are so safe is that the salt has not left the salt shaker. It still sits on the table, unleashed upon the world, uncommitted, fearful, and faithless. Paul, in Romans chapter 7, verse 24, 
summed up the problem of the sinner captured by the strong man who was armed. And he says in verse 24, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Paul understood that in his own abilities, by his own willpower, he could not free himself from the hold of Satan. The strong man had overcome him, and even with his best of intentions, he still felt that he was a prisoner. My friends, just when it looked like it was all over, when the battlements of hell looked like they would indeed prevail, In the fullness of time, the Bible says, God sent his son, Jesus, to die for the sins of the world. And when Jesus came, he brought an end to the domination of sin on the planet. Who will rescue sinners from Satan's grasp? Well, Romans 7.25 tells you, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is Jesus who rescues sinners. It is Jesus who liberates us. It is Jesus who frees us from sin. Part of our issue is not that we have not heard about Jesus, it's that we have not necessarily fallen in love with Jesus. It's not that we are unfamiliar with his power, it's that we have not embraced his power. It is Jesus who liberates us. Luke eleven twenty two says, but when someone stronger attacks, yes, this strong man was well armed, but the Bible and Jesus lets us know that there is somebody stronger than Satan. You ought to say amen to that. I'm glad to know that there's a power greater than hatred, a power stronger than than lust, a power stronger than greed, a force in society stronger than hatred, and that force is the love of God. Satan may be the strong man armed, but our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is stronger than the devil. He attacks and overcomes the devil whenever the heart of the sinner is converted, whenever conversion to to God happens, it is a victory for the kingdom of God. He takes away Satan's armor. When the power of sin and corruption in the soul is broken, when mistakes are rectified, when the eyes are finally opened and the heart is humbled and changed, then Satan's armor is removed. We can remove his battlements from our hearts when we soften our hearts and humble ourselves before God. Humility is sometimes difficult for many people. And as you are as students in this school, one of the problems that you will face in your careers is learning to be humble. Because we will pump you up, as Arnold Schwarzenegger says. We will give you large titles and degrees, and you'll gain great knowledge. And you may be tempted to believe that you know it all. How many have ever met a know-it-all? Have you ever encountered someone of that ilk, they're quite difficult to live with. You can't tell them anything. Um, They have little people who walk beside them to hold up their heads because they're so heavy and it might roll over and and incapacitate them. So they have to have, you know, head bearers to, and, you know, people walk around and and, uh, proclaim them before they come into the room. Ladies and gentlemen, humility is a rare thing upon the planet. But unless we humble ourselves before God, we cannot disable the strong man who is taking control of our hearts. See, Jesus is totally committed to the final destruction of the strong man. And so must the church also be committed to the strong man's destruction. Verse 23 of Luke says, he who is not with me is against me. 
who does not gather with me scatters. We have a choice of either being against God or for God. There really is no place of neutrality allowed in the great controversy. You cannot live in spiritual Switzerland. You are either on the side of God or you're on the side of the devil and there is no middle ground. If you're not on God's program, therefore, he declares that you must be his enemy. From the book Gospel Workers, page 290, I'd like to read you this quote. Gospel Workers, page 290. It says, Christian life is more than many take it to be. It does not consist wholly in gentleness, patience, meekness, or kindliness. These graces are essential. But there is need also of courage, of force, of energy, and perseverance. The path that Christ marks out is a narrow path. To enter that path and press on through difficulties and discouragements requires men who are more than weaklings. There is a certain level of grit and determination we must have in our lives. And we must recognize that the Christian graces of gentleness, patience, meekness, and mildness are important, but it also requires courage. It takes courage to serve God. I was told of a story when we recently came back from Russia, and we had an opportunity to visit our, our university at Zowski, right outside of Moscow. And I talked to Eugene Zaitsev, who's the president of the school there, and he told me why he found himself in ministry today. When Perestroika came about and the walls, the, 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 the wall fell between the East and the West, the doors opened up for the preaching of the gospel. Dr. Zaisif is a pediatrician by training. But when he saw the opportunity to preach the gospel and he remembered that his grandfather was a minister, he was so, so impressed by his grandfather's testimony that Dr. Zaisif put down his stethoscope retrained, picked up his Bible, and began to preach. He told me a story about his grandfather. And I don't know if I ever relayed the story to you. His grandfather was imprisoned for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Soviet Union, Christianity and Adventism were not legal religions. So he's put in jail, and most of the Adventist ministers of that generation all found themselves behind bars. All of them were in jail at some point in their, in their lives. There were many people who were starving and having a hard time in the, in the jail. And there was this one guard who had this habit of, try, of slicing up bread and putting it on his table where he would sit and he would munch on bread while the other prisoners had very little to eat. And he was very fastidious about his habits. He would count the slices of bread that he had. And he kept noticing day after day one slice would be missing and then another slice would be missing. And he kept trying to find out what, what prisoner was able to come by and, and steal his bread, but he couldn't find out. So he sliced some bread and he laid it there and he went not far away so he could keep his eye on his bread to see who was stealing it. And he noticed a cat jumped up on the table, grabbed a slice of bread between his, his mouth, and jumped off the table instead of going back into one of the barracks. He followed him. And the cat went through the barracks door, went directly to this Adventist minister, 
and laid bread right next to him and walked away. The Bible says your bread and water will be sure. Ladies and gentlemen, it takes courage to serve God. We are in a battle, a battle for our very lives. And you can't be mealy-mouthed and, well, I'm almost committed, halfway committed. Well, I think I want to do right. you got to make up your minds. People who recognize that they are in war recognize that they have to be seriously committed. I look at what's going on in the Middle East, and I recognize there are people there who are fanatically committed. I'm not praising their fanaticism, but I am amazed and impressed at their commitment. Committed enough to strap pounds of C4 explosives around their bodies and walk into a crowded place and blow themselves up in order to destroy their infidel enemies. That takes commitment. And I wonder sometimes, what are we committed to? What pain are we prepared to endure? What inconvenience are we prepared to to endure for God? Are we afraid to go places that he sends us? Are we afraid to speak for him when he calls us to, to speak a word on his behalf? The offensive strategy that Jesus lays down in Luke 11 basically says Jesus has already slayed the devil on the cross. And he goes after his embattlements around our hearts by his power. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he seeks to free men and women from addictions, from their habits, from their, from their depression, from all the things that hold us back. In the power of God, we can free men and women from these problems. Just as the demons were cast out here, we can do that same thing. Greater work shall you do, Jesus said, than I have done. But we've assumed that that greater work was for another time. But not only is there an offensive strategy, what about his defensive strategy? Well, Jesus gave another example in Luke chapter 11, verse 24. Turn there with me, Luke chapter 11, verse 24. It says, when an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept, clean, and put in order. There's a big difference between the devil, when the devil comes out, and when the devil is cast out at conversion. The person spoken of here is someone who starts off with all the best intentions, but never fully surrenders themselves to God's will. His heart still remains the devil's house. Satan still holds the deed to the property. And it may appear that the devil has left the house. The unclean spirit looks like it's gone. The house is swept clean and put in order. And that is really the life of many, many Christians. They come to church and they look marvelous. Their houses appear swept and appear clean. They are able to mimic all the right words. They're able to say, I studied my Sabbath school lesson seven times. They pay tithe. They don't have, they're not bedecked in a lot of jewelry. They look good. And you assume, well, this person must really have something. And frequently they have very, very little. They just only look like they are there because their house is swept, it's clean. It is indeed put in order. It is swept from common pollutions by a forced confession or a partial reformation. 
You may indeed escape even some of the pollutions of the world, but there's nothing inside. When I was a kid, about 16 years old, I remember I had a fairly interesting notion about how one gets saved. And I know no one here has this notion because you are all too wise and, and well-educated to believe this. But I believe that God was a great accountant and that he kept track of my good and my bad because I read in the Bible, as you have read, that he has books and the books are being kept and the angels are recording everything. So I actually came to the place of believing, well, wait a minute, if he's recording everything, then I can live the life I want to live. So on Saturday night, when I was planning on going someplace I had no business and doing things I had no right to do, I would make sure that earlier in the week I did good deeds. And I tried to bank up all that my good deeds so that I had a storehouse of them and I could spend them like credit on Saturday night. Because I recognized in my feeble mind that at, when I finally got to judgment, all I needed to do was come out on the positive side of the ledger. It was an accounting procedure. And as long as my good deeds had outweighed my bad deeds, I would be entered into the kingdom and I could hang out with Jesus and the saints for eternity. None of you think like that, do you? That never crossed your mind. See, that's the same thing as being swept and clean. You can look unpolluted to many, but there's no power in that. There's no, there's no love. There's no affection in that. There's no real, there's real, no real um, saving grace in that. So even though the house was swept, it was not washed. You know, there's a difference between just being swept and actually being clean. Yesterday I had to go home, as many of you do, and I, I swept up, vacuumed up the house and swept up the, the floors. But I recognized that the floor was only swept. It was not clean. So I had to do what, what many of you love to do, um, get the bucket and the mop and, and mop the floor. You know, many of us sweep ourselves because that's an activity we can do. But the washing of our souls is not something we can do. We have to be washed by what? Anybody know the blood of Jesus? That's right. We are washed by Jesus. We can't clean ourselves. We need something else to come and clean us. And Jesus said, if I wash ye not, you will have no part of me. It's not enough for us to clean up our lives. It's not enough for us to clean up our acts. If we have not been washed by Jesus, it's all about self. And it's all going to be defeated in the end. Because we cannot make ourselves live holy lives. Sweeping takes off only the loose dirt while the beloved sin that besets the sinner is still held onto, and that sin is deeply embedded in the walls, and unless washed, will never come off. It's swept, but the leprosy of sin is still in us, and only the blood of Jesus can wash that away. Our hearts have been put in order and garnished, but not furnished with the furniture of grace. But the real issue is not that we are clean, but is that we are empty and unoccupied. If you read in the passage, we recognize that Christ does not reside in our hearts. Therefore, when the devil returns to his palace, he finds it neat and vacant, 
he moves in with seven, it says, seven sinners, seven so, uh, devils worse than himself. It's not enough to be clean and empty. And in fact, the only way we can be clean is to be fully occupied by the presence of a saving God. Ladies and gentlemen, hypocrisy is the high road to apostasy. In the Bible commentaries, the fifth volume, page 1090, uh, 1093, we read that self-righteousness is a curse, a human embellishment which Satan uses for his glory. Those who garnish the soul with self-praise and flattery prepare the way for seven other spirits more wicked than the first. In their very reception of the truth, these souls deceive themselves. You know, there's a, a big popular movement, probably in the 70s, in, in popular psychology that basically was suggesting that, if, you know, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay. And many of us go through our lives saying, well, I'm better than he is. Look what he does. So I'm okay. Just being okay is not enough. It's self-flattery. It's flattery to assume that I can attain to the holiness of God by my own resolutions. This is now February. And I remember in our gym where my wife and I go work out, what always happens in gymnasiums around January 1st, January 2nd. Everybody decides that they, they want to lose, you know, 100 pounds or 50 pounds. And they're quite convinced that in a matter of days that this will happen. And so you can't get to a machine. You can't get to the weights. You, there are all these people. You can always tell them because they've got brand new tennis shoes and, you know, bright, shiny workout gear that's, you know, fashion designed and, they have all the look. They look wonderful. I mean, you think they were world-class athletes, and you watch them, and uh, you keep going, and about January 15th, half of them are gone, and by the time you get to February, you can't find any. And so now in our gym, it's just our old, our old crowd, the same folk who, who are there month after month, you know, fighting the battle. But that's really what many people's Christianity is about. We make these resolutions that we're going to do well. And they frequently can come after a week of prayer or a devotional experience where we make a, a decision that we're just going to change our lives and we sweep our house, we clean it up, but it remains unoccupied. And if your house remains unoccupied by the presence of God and a commitment to his, to his will, then it is merely self-flattery and hypocrisy. The only true defense against Satan is to let Jesus, the conqueror, after he has cast the devil out, set up his palace in your heart. There is no safety in just living a clean life. And cleanliness does have its place. But if our hearts remain empty, if the love of Jesus does not fill our very nature, we are at risk of ending up worse in the end than in the beginning. If we are going to triumph in the great controversy between Christ and Satan, it is not only a good offense that we will need, but it is also a good defense. Gospel Workers, page 287 says, When one is fully emptied of self, 
when every false god is cast out of the soul. The vacuum is filled by the inflowing of the Spirit of Christ. Such a one has the faith that purifies the soul from defilement. He has no confidence in self. Christ is all in all. I was attending officer basic training for the United States Army. I was in the Army Reserve Medical Corps. And one of the the exercises we had to do is we had to climb a 50-foot tower and take a rope and rappel down the tower. And I remember the gang I was hanging out with of other officers, we were all laughing at each other and saying how easy or how hard this was going to be. And, and we were watching others coming down. And one of the things that certainly encouraged us or perhaps terrified us was you had two ways of coming down the tower. You could either rappel down the wall or you could free rappel down a rope. Well, we watched somebody go ahead of us and they decided they wanted to free rappel down the rope. And they attached the belay to themselves and they free rappelled and they dropped like a brick. Something about slowing themselves down was not learned in the in their uh, training, and they went straight down and crashed on some some tires and other things. And we looked at that person and said, "Okay, we're not free repelling." So we decided to go down and repel down the wall. And I watched a young lady who was uh, a nurse, army officer, and she was standing on on one side, just crying and crying. She didn't want to go down the wall, didn't want to go down the wall, and they were screaming and shouting at her to make her go down the wall, and, and she finally did, and, and uh, it was my turn. So I stand up at the wall, and the man says, okay, you want, you, you've seen how these people are going down this wall. They're taking really a long time. Do you want to take a, a long time to get down, or do you want to go down quickly? Well, me, who had dummy tattooed right across his forehead, said, well, I think I'd like to go down quickly. Well, what should have happened is that he should have put two loops in my belay so that I could have slowed myself down better by putting the rope behind my back and repelling, bouncing off the wall. Instead, he put one loop so that when I got to the edge of the wall and leaned all the way back, trying to hold myself, I had not enough friction on the belay, and actually what happened is I wound up 50 feet in the air, upside down. My feet stayed on the wall, my head went straight down. I could see in my upside-downness my friends stretched out on the ground laughing. 911 had been called to resuscitate them. They were laughing at me so hard. And here I am, 50 feet in the air, feet straight up in the air, head straight down. And I tell you, in that position, one understands what it means to be emptied of self. All I was doing was saying, Lord, if you get me down off this wall, this is one prayer you'll never have to hear from me again. And I was finally able to right myself and come down that wall and get to the end, to, only to the thundering applause of my friends who were laughing hysterically at my plight. Ladies and gentlemen, in the, in the, in the great adventure called life, we can often be tempted to hold on to self, our ego, our pride, our self-sufficiency. But God has a way, mercifully, of humbling us. We must empty ourselves of self 
and every false God and then allow that vacuum of emptiness to be filled by Jesus Christ. It is not enough for us to be clean and empty. We must be filled. I close with Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Here am I, Jesus says, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. I wonder this morning how many of us have had Jesus standing at the door. Hearing him knock, going through the motions, living clean lives that are empty. Ladies and gentlemen, the greatest adventure that can ever come to your life, the most excitement you'll ever have, is when you surrender your heart to Jesus Christ. I remember watching people bungee jump. Does anybody hear bungee jump? I always looked at bungee jumping, and I, I, and I saw people tying a rubber band, essentially, to their ankles and jumping off a bridge and hoping the rubber band would, would finally take and, and save them from crashing to the rocks below. And I heard them exci- explain this as excitement. See, I grew up in South Central L.A. Just walking to school was more excitement than hanging from, from a bungee cord, just, just surviving, because I didn't need that level of excitement. But I will tell you, once you submit your heart to God and surrender your will to his will, Buckle your seatbelt. You're in for a major adventure of your life because God has a plan for you. He has great things he wants to do with you and through you. And I can guarantee you that what God has planned for you may be very different than what you have planned for yourself. I never planned on being a minister. Here I am. My wife never planned. She said she would never marry a minister, or a physician. Boy, was she ever wrong. And in one move, she got both and didn't even know it. When God takes your life into his control, he will lead you places that you never dreamed that you would be. So I'm standing there in Red Square in Moscow, outside Lenin's tomb, and I'm saying to myself, What's a poor boy from South Central L.A. doing in Moscow at the Red Square? It's because I was living out part of God's plan for my life. And now I recognize I've I've made a compact with God. I've decided never to say to God what I will never do because God has a sense of humor. And the very thing I say I won't do, he says, oh, really? Okay, well, thank you very much. Are you submitted to me? Yes, Fine. Well, here's your ticket to New York. One of those places I used to say I would never go. I'll go now, Lord. I'll go. Because maybe if I tell him I, I'll go, I won't have to. He stands. He knocks. And he says, let me in. What restoration really is all about is not cleaning us from the outside in, but cleaning us from the inside out. We are restored when Jesus lives out his life inside of us. 
when the words I speak are no longer mine, and I know it because God has given me words to speak. When, my, when the anger that I would have had under one circumstance is now turned to love, then I recognize it's not me because I'm not capable of that. It's Jesus working in me. He is looking for vessels to fill. And when he fills your vessel, he empowers you to be something that you had never dreamed you could become. So now every morning when I wake up, I wake up with gratitude and I ask God, what will you have me do today? And his knowing that I have committed myself to his will has tied God and I in a, in a marvelous adventure called living where he works his will through my life. He desires to work his will through your life. That Beelzebub, that great enemy of the soul, will be slain, defeated, his embattlements torn down, and the house that God built would be filled with his presence. Let us pray. Lord and Father, we appreciate the value of living clean lives, of moral rectitude, But, Father, we recognize that there are many people who live moral, outwardly lives who are empty inside. We pray for the filling and the indwelling of your Holy Spirit. We ask you to occupy our hearts, to come in and live inside of us. We surrender the key to your hands. Help us to furnish our hearts with the fruit of your spirit, love, joy, and peace. Help us to surrender self and allow you to reign as Lord, sovereign in our lives. We thank you for the power of your word today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.